Hello, and welcome to the Yellow Brick Therapy Podcast. My name is Jenny Helms, and I am your host. I have taken a little bit of a rest on podcasting, so I do want to apologize for that. I know I've been out for the last, I guess it's been about four or five weeks, working on building Soma Recovery, and so my life has been a little hectic, and I took a little bit of a rest, but I plan to hopefully have things up and running more regularly in the next couple of weeks as my life just gets a little more consistent and I don't have all the random to-do list of a of a startup. So anyway, I just want to share with you guys that, you know, it's been a really fun and interesting and stressful at times couple of weeks, but overall, I'm so glad that I'm doing this project and I'm so happy to connect with any of you about it. Um, I've gotten a lot of support in our community, and so truly I'm grateful. And I'm excited to get back to something that I really love, which is podcasting and sharing different things with you. This podcast is actually going to be a presentation that I gave out in Andover at Elevation Performance. Cody Weber invited me out to talk to his clients, and it was such a really cool experience. Like, I... I kind of wasn't sure exactly what I was going to talk about when I first came in, so I decided I'd just kind of give a little bit of of a spiel of what I understand about food and emotions and how they're connected in our relationship with food, and it ended up being a really good discussion, and I opened it up for question and answer, and there were some really, really good questions that I'm glad were asked, and even a couple of tears were shed, too. It It was quite an interesting and um, I don't know. It was a really good and connecting talk. So I'm very grateful that Cody gave me the opportunity to do that. If you're out in Andover, I definitely recommend his gym. Like he's just a really, I've only met him a couple times, but he's just got this energy that is amazing. So it's definitely something to check out. Um, yeah. So anyway, without much further ado, I'll go ahead and start the episode, but I did want to let you guys know that There will likely be a lot more consistency, probably not weekly at this point, but I'm shooting for like bi-weekly, and I'm also really excited because Lisa and I are also uh, just restarting the Mind Your Body podcast again, and so if you haven't checked that out, that is also another really good podcast um, where Lisa and I talk about all things mind and body. So anyway, I will get into this episode, and here we go. So, um, today she's going to be talking everything between the ears, okay? Uh, I know we talk a lot about how important that is um, in a lot of our conversations, okay? We can teach you how to do a lunge, how to do a squat, we can kick your butt in here, we can give you meal plans, we can, you know, give you the right grocery shopping list, but a lot of our limitations, a lot of the reasons we are, I'm just going to stop talking. She's got it, so like, you guys get it. Good right? idea. So Jenny Helms, everybody, thank you so much. Yeah. I, so I brought some handouts, but I wildly underestimated how many people would show up, because I only brought like nine. So this That's is great. Fun. Yeah, this is a great, a great problem. Um, I am a licensed family, marriage and family therapist that specializes in eating disorders. And hold on one second as I focus on both of these things. Yeah, 
So I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I work. I specialize in eating disorders, and I've been working with disordered eating, emotional eating, people's relationship with food in general. So I see things all across the spectrum, not just eating disorders, and I think that's kind of confusing for people at times. Um, but I've also done coaching for people who are struggling, where you know maybe they've tried diets several times and they never stuck to them. It never quite works. There was, you know, they could do something for four or five months and then they fall off the wagon, so to speak. And so I really love working with people when they're like, I know the nutritional information, I know the exercise information, but there's some disconnect between my brain actually doing it and this becoming like an innate lifestyle thing for me. Um, and yeah, and everyday life practice. So I work on the deeper levels of why maybe we might subconsciously be uh, sabotaging ourselves, the different psychological components that keep people from eating, or having a healthy relationship with food is, is really the large overview of it. I'm gonna talk at you guys for probably five to 10 minutes, and then I'll open the floor for a question and answer because I wanna know what's relevant for you. I'm sure I could talk at you guys about a bunch of different things, and there's certain things that are gonna be relevant in your life now, um, and other things that won't be. So I kinda like the dialogue a little bit better than uh, just kinda talking at you. The other thing is I am recording this and I'm gonna be putting it on a podcast. So if you have anything you bring up that you want me to take out, let me know later and I'll edit it out if there's anything personal. Um, I'll try to kind of de-identify it as much as possible because I want to respect your privacy as people. So yeah. Um, the first thing I just wanted to talk about is this is like a step progressional thing, but you know, the actual process of creating a healthy relationship with food is not linear. It's not like you can follow a step-by-step -step thing. Everybody's gonna be struggling with different components of this, but this kind of just outlines the different things you're gonna wanna look at when it comes to looking at your relationship with food. Um, so the first thing I like to do with clients though, we kind of start here, is understanding how their relationship with food began. Their family history with food, how their parents talked about food. Did they have dinner together? What were things that were said? What were things that weren't said? Um, that kind of gave messages about the rules about food, bodies, other people's bodies, all of that. Because there's, very, there's a lot of power in how our parents even communicate about food, how they eat, what they tell us about food and bodies, their own body, and how they live their life with food too. Um, I grew up in a family that we had the, the clean plate club. I don't know if any of you guys can relate, but I'd literally be at the table and couldn't leave until I finished everything on my plate. So one of the things I didn't realize was kind of subconsciously ingrained in me was you eat everything. Like it doesn't matter if you're hungry for it, it doesn't matter what it is, you clean your plate because there are starving kids in Africa, right? <laughs> and so that's like a very small and kind of a, a silly example of, of a way that like we can grow up in an environment with certain messaging and that can translate to how we currently eat our food. Now I no longer am part of the clean plate club, but I do remember having that kind of aha moment where I'm like, I don't know why I just feel the need to make sure that I'm cleaning my plate. Um, the other thing that uh, is important to understand too is that we inherit a lot of things from our family systems. We now know that like epigenetically, we inherit you know, genes for how our bodies will actually even process that food, but also um, we now know that we inherit cortisol levels, hormones, 
different kind of psychological issues that our families haven't resolved get passed on to us. And so if any of that has anything to do with food, um, it's going to likely show up in our household too if, if our, if our you know, family generations have also had issues with food. We also see this in the eating disorder world where it's like genetically, if you have somebody in your family who has an eating disorder, the likelihood of somebody having an eating disorder increases like tenfold. So it's kind of interesting to look at that as well. The other thing is to look at the ways you use food to cope. I think a lot of people, they kind of understand that maybe a little bit, that like maybe they numb out or um, you know, emotionally they're craving something. But sometimes it's, it's really funny how with a lot of the clients I work with, until they actually journal about their feelings and emotions around food, they don't realize how much they might be using food to cope with their life. And I also want to like have empathy in this process that if somebody's trying to make changes with how they eat and they're having a lot of stress in their life or there's consistent trauma happening in their relationships or family systems, when I say trauma, I don't mean like huge like hurricane tornado trauma. I just mean like if you feel like you're in a toxic relationship or there's a lot of anxiety in your relationships, um, a lot of people use food to numb that. And so part of healing their relationship with food means that they're actually healing those things as well. So they're not using food to numb that. Um, in addition to learning other ways of managing their anxiety and being with their anxiety versus trying to, you know, feel like they constantly have to numb it. So I can empathize with the fact that sometimes anxiety, depression, relationship problems, work problems, life problems, those are incredibly stressful. And, you know, people kind of, they pick their poison of what they use to kind of numb it typically. And a lot of people use food. The third is to identify eating triggers. That kind of goes along with that. What are the environmental triggers that result in overeating? We talk about, I'm sure you guys have talked about it in here. I see the precision nutrition signs all around, which is great. Um, but we're talking about food environment. Do we have a bunch of food in our environment, like cookies and pizza, and different things that are literally created to kind of trigger different things in our brain um, in our environment? all the time? Is it at work? Like I know a lot of people, they go to work and people bring in food and that can be a tricky thing. Um, so what are, what are some of those triggers? Is it having food like that in your environment? Um, is it relationship stress too? That's also an environmental trigger. Uh, four, identify your patterns of eating. Um, do you have more challenging times of day when you eat certain things or don't eat certain things? What I've what I've seen a pattern with for people is nighttime. There's a lot of more nighttime eating, nighttime snacking. I think there's a bunch of different reasons for that. Our brain is tired. We have decision fatigue. Um, but that's typically when people are not engaged in so many things. So they're kind of, you know, the chatter of their brain starts, and that's when they kind of numb. Um, it might be where they're kind of emotionally in their family systems, and if there's stuff unresolved there, that's kind of their comfort. Or, you know, a lot of people put on a face at work. They're not really feeling very connected at work. They're not, you know, maybe enjoying their work as much as they could. And, you know, they come home and they numb things with food. Or even throughout the day, they numb things with food. So these are all just, like, I'm throwing things at you guys, but these are all just things to consider. Like, do you, does any of this resonate with me? I think overall, as a culture, we're very disconnected. Um, even, you know, in our work environments, a lot of people feel like they have to put on a face, they have to be a certain kind of person. The problem is, when we don't feel like we get to be our authentic selves, 
we don't feel like we truly belong because we, we know that people like the face we put on, but we don't know that they actually like or connect with those other parts of us that we're hiding from them. And so people pleasers or people in certain jobs that you really just can't be completely yourself, um, it gets really tough because we, there's a lot of inauthenticity and disconnection in our world. So that's another thing to consider is you know the lack of connection. People kind of find comfort and soothing and food. The other thing is we live in a culture where we're not really taught to eat mindfully. We're not taught to really kind of be in the moment with our food, which I know sounds woo-woo, but it's but it is important. And it does say something about our culture that a lot of people are eating on the go. They're almost not trying to have any sort of connection with their food. They're not trying to taste it. They're not trying to like, you know, make it pretty or be in the moment with it. You know, I myself, I'm a, I just started a business, so I'm a pretty busy professional. And so there are times that I do eat on the go. But for the most part, I do try to sit down. I try to taste it. I try to really be with my food versus, again, disconnected from it. Um, the other thing that contributes a lot to the way that people eat is the relationship with themselves. It's, it gets a little deep at times with people, and there's, there's kind of ways that it, it comes to this place. But even this last Friday, I was talking with a client, and she, when she doesn't feel a sense of worth, when she doesn't feel like life is worth living, she kind of self-sabotages herself with the way that she eats. She doesn't feel like healthy eating or having a healthy relationship with food is worth it because there's kind of a subconscious dialogue even in her that she's not worth it, that life is not worth it. She was raised in a family system where they would literally say things like, good things don't happen to us um, and we're just not popular and we're just not this. So she already has this mindset that life isn't really is it really worth it, right? Or it's not gonna be good for her. And so why, why try to eat healthy and even live longer? So even though she's not quite, you know, what we would call suicidal, there is a part of her that self-sabotages and almost, you know, thinks, hey, I don't really care about my health because I'm already just like in this space where I don't necessarily want to be engaged in life. And I don't think life's gonna have good things for me. Um, so it could also be about how we perceive life and our relationship with ourselves. A lot of the work I do with people also entails setting boundaries and working on self-esteem. Because when people start to have better boundaries, when they start learning how to say no, especially moms, that's, that's something I've definitely seen, moms tend to not um, say no to as many things, or they, they tend to kind of build resentment and anger that they end up eating away. Um, because they don't say no to people. They don't say no to events. They don't say no to things that are um, just things that they simply don't want to do, and they kind of just take on everything for everyone. You know, the other thing they can do is, you know, with kids, they kind of take on all that emotional baggage of their problems or with the family system. And again, this isn't always the case, but I'm just showing you patterns. And typically, dads will tend to be a little bit under-functioning in the family system, while moms tend to be over-functioning. So I see a lot of women who, when they're not setting good boundaries or having good relationship dynamics, that translates into how they eat. Um, and self-esteem. A lot of my clients have what I kind of jokingly refer to them at, or jokingly refer, how, how do I say this? Refer to as 
the darker side of narcissism where they are kind and compassionate to other people. They think, hey, when they have this type of body, they get to go out into the world and have healthy relationships and they're worthy and I think well of them. But when it comes to me, I'm an exception to that rule. Or they are, you know, when they make mistakes or they do different things, it's okay, they're human. But when it comes to me, I don't get to make those mistakes. And, and again, it's that, that sense of like, I, that self-esteem that they have to do so much more and don't give themselves any grace for the mistakes they make or where they're at in life. And they, they view themselves so poorly while looking at the world and saying, everybody else is good. They're fine. I can, I can have compassion for them, but I can't have that for myself. And so I call that the darker side of narcissism because that's kind of a way that you're separating yourself from society and saying, I'm the exception to the rule that I don't get grace, that I don't get to just um, to understand and be compassionate with myself when I'm human. And so there's a lot of shame, self-esteem issues where people don't really maybe always even know what they want, who they are fully. Maybe they've been in some toxic relationships or in some toxic family systems where they didn't really get to have a voice, or if they did have a voice, the consequences were so severe that they just stopped having it. Or, you know, they're really angry and they're raging, but maybe they're not doing it in healthy ways. So it's all across the spectrum. Uh, step nine, honor your body. Uh, think about the ways that you practice self-acceptance or honoring your own needs and desires. Again, I think we're in a culture that tells us we're supposed to look a certain way or be a certain way or feel a certain way even. And so part of helping people with you know, eating and getting a better relationship with their body is helping them understand like what is it specifically that your body needs and where is it at and how can we find acceptance and grace with it because none of us are gonna look like what is advertised out there. We have to look like to be happy. So if that's you know, what happy entails, then we're all kind of screwed, honestly. <laughs> you know, the other thing, too, that I like to work with on with people, um, there's a whole body, like, positivity movement. And I'm cool with that. Like, I think that's good that we're getting exposure. The way that I like to work with clients is I actually like to get them more into a mindset that your body and what you look like is only a very, very small, tiny, tiny percentage of what you are, because a lot of people, especially people with eating disorders, their body, their weight, what they look like, determines 80% of their self-worth, and, and that's a heck of a lot. So basically, their body is them. And in our culture, we kind of over-identify with, you know, with thinking our bodies, again, determine our happiness. So instead of telling people, hey, love your body, hey, go from hating your body to loving it, I actually like to get people into a space where they're just realizing who they are and that they are so much more than their bodies. And when they start to do that, look at all their other wonderful talents and gifts, it just, their relationship with their body completely changes to where they can appreciate it and accept it. And again, I'm not trying to get people from hating it to loving it. I don't, I, sometimes positive affirmations to me are, are a bunch of crap. That's my perspective. I, maybe they were for some people, but in my own journey, which I didn't quite tell you guys, I had an eating disorder for four years in high school. So I'm a wounded healer. That's part of why I'm so passionate about this work. Um, but if somebody told me to go from hating my body to loving it, or like doing the positive affirmations, I would have looked at them and said, 
you're crazy. Like, no, there's no way I can go from where I'm at right now to even thinking body positivity. But as I started to um, increase, again, what we call our sense of self and raising my own self-esteem and finding out who I really was, um, that's when my relationship with my body changed because I, my relationship with myself changed. And my body didn't become the most significant part of me that determined my self-worth. And step 10, I'm sure you guys are over this in here. Like, I know that you probably have a lot of information about what a foundation of healthy eating looks like. Um, but I do think it's, an, it's helpful for us that we're able to eat in a way that we are mostly eating whole, whole foods and things that are nourishing and that actually feed us and our bodies and our cells. We are biological creatures and we can't deny that. And it's okay to emotionally eat from time to time and to enjoy ice cream and to enjoy things and to have flexibility with that. The issue we see is when people are overly rigid, right? Or they're just like, screw it, I'm just gonna eat all the foods all the time without any sort of thought into it. So when we're talking about balance, it's not like, hey, we have to eat healthy all the time and always whole foods, but it's like, let's have a good solid foundation and then like, let's have some flexibility so we can go enjoy birthday parties and social outings and really be able to connect with people over food without stressing too much about the carbs and calories and nutrient density 100% of the time, right? Because that's no way to live life either. And so the whole point of like people healing this is really so that they get back into what I would call their healthy self and they're able to live life without obsessing over food, but also not having food be the thing that's bringing them down with their mental and physical health. So that is the spiel that I will give you guys today. Um, I do wanna have a question and answer because you know, I know that, again, I have things I could talk at you about, but I would really love to have more of a dialogue on the specific questions that you have. Um, I have a question. So, yeah. So you said that um, uh, a lot of people eat to numb the, either the pain or what they're going through during the, during the daytime. Or So what are other things people do to numb? Why is it food at all times? Most of the people, it's food, I know. Yeah. But what... But why that? Yeah, so how, if, if we say we want, we still need that numbing agent, yeah. what do we di digress ourselves? Like, what do, we, what do we change it from food to something else? Right. We so, still need it. Right, right. And I think that's a good point. So, you know, part of what I do is we could, we could change coping skills, right? We could, we could give you something else to, quote, unquote, numb it. But I don't think that that's ideal long-term. That's why the deeper work matters, because there's reasons that we're having those emotions, and there's reasons we're feeling like we can't be with them, and that we have to numb it. And so part of the work we do, in, in ther if you do therapy with me, um, is we are gonna actually look, we're gonna, <coughs> we're gonna get vulnerable and actually look at that pain. Um, we're gonna be able to go into that and talk about it, rewrite certain belief systems that are holding people back. But um, that will be for that specific pain. This is mm -hmm. life. So it will always come back to different things. Right, right. Yeah, so you, you've got to grow in what we would call your differentiation and your tolerance of anxiety. Like your ability to just sit with it and not try to numb it. And that's hard. I mean, that is really hard, but it's a skill that people build. And we actually, so when it comes to, the, we call it differentiation, but it's this term that, it, that says, hey, your ability to tolerate anxiety and not try to control and manipulate things or numb it. Um, 
we inherit that from our parents. And so typically, unless we had like a really good family system that had a good tolerance for anxiety, we will have to do that work ourselves, whether that's through therapy, um, a combination of like, we know that yoga can help with that too and other different breathing practices where people are just kind of learning to be with their body and those physical sensations um, and get into their, and not be so afraid of it and feel those feelings. I mean, it's, it's a journey. And I don't know that, and in our field, I don't know that we have 100% of the answers, but what I do know is that people grow in their distress tolerance and they grow in learning more about even the different things that are causing that underlying level of anxiety. Um, if people change their sense of self-worth too, right, where they're not consistently needing other people to validate that, they validate it themselves, they will have less anxiety, they will have less stress, because they won't be viewing the world through this lens of like, what does this person think about me, or what about this situation, what do they think about me? So I think it's a combination. It's not like a, we don't have a like, just do this thing, and that will be healed. But my answer would be, you've got to heal the trauma associated with it, and you've got to be able to increase your distress tolerance. Why do most people re- go towards eating? Why do they they stress release by eating? I you know it's I don't most have, people right right, and I wouldn't I wouldn't say that I have like a science based answer to this. My guess would be it's more societally appropriate in a way. There's less shame associated with going towards food than going towards alcohol or sex or, you know, all insert, <laughs> insert the blank of all the different numbing behaviors. Um, we're also consistently in an environment where we have access to that. So it's environmental too, where our food environment is constantly riddled with food. So I think people are more susceptible to it because of the environment. It's less shameful in a way because it's not alcohol, drugs, sex, other things that can be, you know, people hide a little bit more, um, even though there's still a lot of shame around food stuff. And, yeah, I think people can hide it. Yeah, and I think people can hide it easier in a way, too, because it's more of a, we have a cultural issue. I mean, societal issue. There's a cultural issue, the yes. Asian culture. The, the body shaming starts at five, six years of old. Yeah. And it starts towards the parents and then towards the child. Yeah. I, I mean, I can't speak for all we the cultures have, of the yeah, world, but I, I really remember doing some studies and learning about, like, Korean cultures. It's horrible. the same. So all in um, East Asia and um, Oriental Asia, they all have exactly the same culture. Yep, yep, a lot of, yep, yep, you're absolutely it, right. Yeah, you're absolutely right, and there's a lot of eating issues there too. There's a lot of eating issues. I think for me, my issue is uh, it's all or nothing. Yeah. If I have a bag of M&Ms, whether it's a little bag, big bag, I can, I can have it for three days, but they will all be eaten. Yes. Or I can eat them all at one time, but and then I can find without them. So it's it's that with a lot of things. Um, yeah. Even alcohol, you know, I can not yeah. find without it, but if I have it. And maybe you kind of go. It goes until it's gone. You know, I you would, so I just don't buy it. Right, right, and and there, that's one way of dealing with it. But we'd actually, I think, here's what gets tricky. I like to work with people on a really deep level where I'm like, I don't want you to live life where it's like I don't ever put this in my house mm-hmm. forever. I think initially it can be helpful, um, especially when you're in the beginning stages of working through something. Like, don't also tempt yourself all the time. Mm-hmm. But eventually, I think if you do what I would call like a full recovery you'd be able to have that thing in your environment and not be in that all-or-nothing mode with it. 
I would say that, or my guess would be, there might be some shame things you might need to work through when it comes to things. That's why a lot of people struggle with all or nothing. Um, because usually what happens, and it's so quick, is they'll like start eating or drinking something. And then it's like, well, screw it. I'll just have mm -hmm. the whole thing. Like, I've already messed up. Or I'm already, the other, I've you know, the screw other this up. Too. Right. Or you know, the, like, I'm just never going to ever, ever do that ever. Right? Like there's like well, no, I mean, I can, I can have it there and leave it alone. Mm -hmm. But then it'll just, there'll be a moment. It's like, yep. Yeah. And I, sometimes it's not even conscious at that mm -hmm. level. But a lot of people struggle with that. I mean, physiologically, there's stuff going on too. We know that our food companies put things into food that literally mm -hmm. trigger things in our brain, similar to cocaine, like sugar, for instance. Tr <laughs> triggers similar, <laughs> similar systems in our brain that cocaine does. Right? Yeah. And so there's a physiological aspect, and that's one piece, but a lot of the people I work with have this kind of shame mentality where if they start eating a certain thing, they don't have any flexibility. It's not like, okay, I just ate that. That wasn't maybe the best, but okay, let's go to the next meal, and it's totally fine. It's typically this sense of, oh, crap, I ate that. I messed up. I'm a mess up. I failed. I'm a failure. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it goes down that, that shame spiral. Which, when they get, get there, they're like, screw it, so I'll have this, and then I'll do this. And tomorrow, why does it matter? Because I already messed up yesterday, right? Yeah. So it's this sense of um, not being able to have what we call like a healthy sense of guilt, which would be like, eh, maybe that wasn't what, we, what I wanted to do or in alignment with how I really am trying to eat and have a relationship with food. And instead, they see that as, that is who I am. I always screw up. This is how I do things. And they take on that, like, that mistake or error as an identity. So M&M's for breakfast was okay? <laughs> you know, I, I, working in this field, I do believe in everything in moderation. So if you wake up and want M&M's really bad one morning, like, honor that. Just have the freaking M&M's and then, like, have a better lunch. Like, that's totally fine. Um, you know, some people in our field get, like, super obsessive one way or the other, where they're like, never M&M's. So they're like, you know, we can't talk about only eating healthy foods, but I really think there's a balance. Mm. I think your body, sometimes it's okay to emotionally eat. I'm, I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's a bad thing when it's all we do, or we do it every night. Just like, you know, drinking or doing some other, like it's not like those things are bad, it's bad when we abuse it. So if you wanna wake up one morning and eat M&Ms, like. I did. You do it. <laughs> you do that. But like maybe maybe also not do that for every meal or maybe not every meal. You know what I'm saying? Like it's peanuts. Get the dark chocolate. Yeah. So there's one scenario. So you start doing this awareness that okay, I messed up one meal, the next meal is good. I messed up one day or I, I was sick or I couldn't do workout, I'll do next day. So you're on this path. Yeah. But you keep falling off this path every few months. And then, yeah. you, and then it takes all the energy to bring yourself back onto that path. Yep. And then another few months, you'll fall off that path again. Why do you keep falling off? You understand. So everything you said, I understand all of that. Mm -hmm. And that's where I bring myself back onto that path by myself. Mm -hmm. But why do I fall, fall off of it? I would say that you're probably not healing the underlying trauma or core beliefs that you have oh, around so food. <laughs> <laughs> well, join the club. I mean, if you're human, you've experienced trauma or different things that like, I mean, gosh, I was still very lucky to have the parents I had, but there were a lot of things they said or did, 
you know, my mom struggled with her own. Back home, and I was like, we yeah. need to talk here. Yeah. It just, <laughs> what it did you do? It wasn't, and they, and they learned it from their family systems, right? And in the culture they were in, and the different things that happened, the traumas that happened in their life, right? Um, I think that we're all, like, we all have what I would call our healthy sense of self. And then life happens, and we're born with certain predispositions. Just like genetically, you know, maybe you know that one person can eat one way, and if you ate that same way, your body would be different. We all have different susceptibilities to things like anxiety or depression or mental health issues, too, where, you know, maybe this person could live their life a certain way and work a lot of hours and be a little more isolated, even though I don't really think that's necessarily a healthy thing long term. Um, for you, you might have to be very careful about the way you live your life and, it, the, and make sure that you're adding in social activities and that you're eating a certain way and exercising, not just for your physical health, but for your mental health. Because for some people, they have to kind of guard that just like certain people are going to be more susceptible to different kind of physical issues than other people based on our genetics. So there, there's a biological piece, but a lot of it happens with the messages and core beliefs we get in our family systems growing up. Um, and that's sometimes, again, things that are said, and sometimes it's things that are not said, and that's where it gets really tricky. No, we um, just say it all. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, and, and the funny part is people that say it all, that's better. That's better. So it's trauma, all out there. That's good, because family systems that keep it all in, that they actually tend to pass on more trauma and have more mental health issues than family systems that actually talk about the hard things. So that's good. That's good. They're already a step ahead in, in just one way, so that's... That's something. Yeah. I was just going to say, um, I've been through two different rounds of working with someone in your profession, yeah. specifically for weight, and yeah. to help me deal with many of my different childhood traumas that have led to where I am today. Yep. Um, because of that, I'm very, very aware, and I, I pay very close attention to the signs of when I'm heading towards falling off the path or when I'm heading towards that. Mm -hmm. And my problem is I... I I, I know those signs and I see them mm -hmm. and I recognize them and I recognize that I'm about ready to sabotage. Mm -hmm. um, you were talking before that that's something that people do and definitely when I've had success, mm -hmm. I know the end of my success will be a sabotage. Mm -hmm. And it's totally on my part. I see it coming. Mm -hmm. I do my best to you know prevent it. But the only thing for me that I have found that makes my sabotage... Um, less of an impactful piece on my whole life mm -hmm. is I just say, okay, I'm at that point. I have to take a break, mm -hmm. even if it's just a day. And I just have to recognize, give myself that acceptance that I'm at that point. Mm -hmm. And then I have to accept that and then I can go straight back into it. So mm -hmm. my falling off, if you would, can be very, very short, but yeah. only because I'm hyper, hyper aware of, oh, I've Things have been going really good. Right. I see it coming. Right. And I have to accept that and, and give myself permission. And right. forgive myself before it even happens. <laughs> well, that tells me you've done shame work, right? Yeah, You're definitely. able to be with yourself and that you're able to be with all your parts, right? Nobody's yeah. perfect. No one's going to be on a, like, eating thing perfectly or have a perfectly healthy relationship with food. Um you know, I, I see it kind of like where, you know, when working with people who struggle with depression, it's not that they'll never, ever be depressed again, but those periods of depression and the, their ability to be resilient and bounce out of it get shorter and shorter and shorter, and they're more resilient and able to bounce out of it over time. So it's not going to be like this perfect thing where somebody's working on this stuff and they 
completely fall out of their cycle, but it's more that the cycle will change and it's going to look different over time and that it's constantly changing that cycle versus it looking exactly the same with a similar duration and a similar fashion and that sort of thing. But this work can take time. I mean, I'm still, I'm still healing from trauma and different things. I'm still on that journey, still learning a lot about it. I've really focused a lot on, on how body is stored in the tra- or trauma is stored in the body. That's the newer thing that we're figuring out in our field, and that we've been doing a lot of work, a good work here, but then we're missing the lower regions of our brain and treating that trauma. And so they're finding yoga and massage and things that sound really woo-woo are actually really helpful for that. That's part of the center I opened, actually. We treat, we treat trauma that's stored in the body. That's what we do in, in addition to therapy. Um, and we do nutrition to help people with their mental health concerns and trauma and all that stuff because we do know that the gut and the mind are completely connected and integrated. So, But I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up. I'm really glad you brought that up. So um, I'm feeling anxiety from this whole thing because I'm checking a lot of boxes. Yeah. Yeah. I felt like I fell into a hole these last four weeks, and I'm not sure what to do to get out. Yeah. Yeah, well, okay, you're here, and you're opening up about that, so step one. (laughs) No, 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 don't apologize. I feel safe here. Yeah, that's great. So you're being vulnerable right now. We're all in the same room. Yeah, we all checked all of the boxes. (laughs) (laughs) We're all checking all of the boxes. Not one missed out of there. Like somebody, yeah, yeah, I mean, you're human, right? And and maybe, I don't know exactly everything that's going on in your life. But um, the self sabotage is huge. Yeah, I really recommend you talk to somebody and somebody, a professional. Who I mean, sometimes people can find non professionals that are great. I'm not here to say therapy is the only way, it's just one of the ways that I know and that I've been healed. Um, but I think that you know, the self sabotage, I mean, that used to be my life too, where I literally, I remember like obsessing over how I would like sit in a chair and like I'd literally spend like 30 minutes thinking about that and I would have no idea what like my teachers were saying or anything else that was happening because I was so like, I would obsess over little things like that. And when you do work with somebody to help you really figure out what's at the root of that and maybe why your brain's doing that, why that it, that's its go-to, it can be so, so healing. So, like, I know that we won't necessarily be able to dive into that right now, um, but I would recommend that. And in the meantime, I'd recommend grace, radical grace and self-acceptance because for whatever reason, and probably actually a good reason, like, it seems like, wow, my brain really hates me and is trying to, like, keep me in this pattern. But, you know, I developed a lot of what I developed through my own ways of surviving emotional trauma from my childhood. So it came about from like a good protective place, but then you know it over time it started to hurt me, right? And it started to keep me from being myself and keep me from interacting with the world. And so my guess would be is this, this is coming probably from a good place of your brain trying to help you in some way, but now over time it's hurting you and, and holding you back. So you can have grace and acceptance until you're able to figure out what what is what with that. Um, that's the best way of being able to kind of like even go into that journey and start being vulnerable and working with that. Again, with a professional. Um, yeah, because even friends, you know, they can be well-intentioned, but, you know, we've all got our stuff. 
right? But I think being in this group of, it sounds like a lot of supportive people, which is awesome, like that can be healing too, even having someone else look at you like you, you really yeah, need this. And you say, me too, right? Or I can at least relate to a part of that, even though I know that all of us are going to have, you know, we're not, we can't always fully understand what the person is going through, but having some empathy with that and saying, you're not alone, and I, I see you, and I don't shame you, right? I see you, and I accept you as you are. And as you say that, I, I feel like I'm sitting here trying to hold back <laughs> body too, you know. But I think we, something that you said earlier, I think we are much more compassionate with others, because I hear you say that. I think, yeah, be graceful with yourself. You know, then I think, yeah, turn it around. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, yeah. One thing that I've learned and teach some of the people, and I'm not good at it, but is our self-talk. Mm-hmm. Would you talk to somebody that you love the way that you talk to yourself? Mm-hmm. And probably not. Mm-hmm. No. So that's so you got to be very aware about how you talk to yourself. And like, sometimes I just have to stop myself and say, no, Teresa Lynn, that is not true. This is what's the truth. Yeah. So. It's true. Mm-hmm. Somebody actually, I stole this from somebody. They were they were talking about um, how we talk to ourselves. It can we can talk sick to ourselves, so it's toxic. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Toxic versus you know, talking in a in a loving way. And I would say, the tricky thing for some people when that happens is that they really struggle to apply it to themselves because they're deeply ingrained core beliefs that they're not lovable or worthy or that they, you know what I mean, where they struggle to do that because they're like, again, that's those deeply ingrained <laughs> beliefs, right? Stuff drives me so crazy. it's tough. It's I, mean, tough. I mean, I learned oh, about four years ago, you know, and maybe this goes along with you or not, but our brains, we have our self-conscious and we have our conscious, and our self-conscious is not, we are not aware of what's going on in our, uh, sub, I mean, not self-conscious, yeah, yeah, yeah. but subconscious. Yep. We're yep. not aware of what's going on in our subconscious. Our conscious is our decision-making part of our brain. Mm-hmm. So in your subconscious, you've got all these paradigms, <laughs> beliefs that we developed through the environment we grew up in, and then our subconscious is is our conscious decisions that match our paradigms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have, and one, I can't tell you about myself, but I can tell you about my son, because I haven't figured my own self out. But, <laughs> but him, you know, we he lost his dad at 18, and he lost his brother at 22, and he lost a girlfriend to cystic fibrosis at 24. Mm-hmm. His paradigm is, if I get close to anybody, they're going to die. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay? Mm-hmm. So the minute he starts getting a relationship that might get to, he just, sabot- he makes those conscious decisions to sabotage the relationship. Right. Right. So he's got to get, you know. Right. It's those core beliefs of like, why get close to somebody? Because I'm going to have to grieve them. Mm-hmm. And to choose to love someone means we choose to grieve them. And I remember, like, going through this, like, like I was learning a lot about grief and love and loss and all that, and I got a new puppy. 
And I remember I was like, I am the weirdest person because I'm like so excited about this, but I'm also already like consciously terrified of the fact that I'm going to have to grieve this dog in like 10 to 12 years, if I'm lucky, right? If nothing else happens, like I'm going to have to do that. And I'm like, to ch- the amount that I choose to love this dog, I'm going to grieve that, right? And grief is one of the hardest human emotions to feel. A lot of people don't know what to do with it, and they don't know how to process it or go through it. I mean, we don't really get a manual for that, and, and it's everybody different. everybody does it differently. Yep, yeah. yep. And so I think that, I mean, that's that to me makes a lot of sense. If they're not willing to move through and feel their grief, they're not going to be willing to move and feel love either. They can't. They can't. Because you cannot love and not And that's grieve. just one of his paradigms mm-hmm. that he sabotages <laughs> or uses his conscious decisions to sabotage. Yep. Yeah, um, but it's relatable. I mean, even yeah. if we don't have that extreme of a thing, a lot of us struggle with intimacy or how close or vulnerable we'll let, or let ourselves be with the person or in our in our intimate relationships because... Well, and it just you know, comes from messages that we got from our parents, you know. Um, or experiences. It could be, or experiences, or, experiences, yes. or anything. It can, those paradigms mm-hmm. come from, yeah, so... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I again, I love talking about this stuff, and there's all these different facets. So do I. I um, just haven't quite figured my own self. Yeah, and I'm running out of time to do that. <laughs> but do, but join the club. I mean, we will always no, be. You know, no, we're always on this journey, right? No, but I'm it sounds fine. like I'm you've done. Yes, yeah, I'm in the work. last third of my life, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Given that amazing, resilient woman, that when I ended up like going through my whole stubbornness of my eating disorder and being hospitalized and being a pain in the ass, really, um, she finally went and got therapy and started healing her own stuff. And I can't tell you how much that helped me for her to get that, even though it was later, right? I was already like 16, 17 when she was, you know, really getting into the process of it. And even as, you know, she's still doing work now, but that. That was incredibly healing for me, for her to get her work done. So you might not even realize that, like, you doing your work is already, like, a resource for them. It's not going to heal everything because they've got, again, because you're not the sole cause of it, right? But you are, you can be the biggest ally and resource for them by working on your own stuff. Yeah, and what what I'm getting, the uh, fighting back from them right now is, Mom, that's not for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's not for me. And I'm like, yeah, it really is, but you have to yeah, be in the right me. place at the right yeah. time. Yeah. And it is, it is. You do have to be in the right place at the right time. But yeah, yeah. yeah they're like, Mom, that being positive and you know, mm-hmm. doing all that mindfulness and awareness. 
Yeah, that's not for me. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Well, and to be fair, that was not kids. that was not for me either when I started my journey. That it was definitely like the road was not linear to that. No, it was never. like like and finally, you know, getting to those places, right? And still working through a lot of that stuff. But you know, again, so I just have to bite my tongue half <laughs> yeah. the time and like, God, please just be safe and figure this out. Don't wait till you're sixty to figure it out. Yeah. You know, I think I think yeah. fear is. I've always told people, fear is like a fire, and as long as we keep putting more logs on it, it's just going to get bigger. Mm -hmm. And fear is just something that is totally created by us. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. it's internalized. We it doesn't really exist unless we make it. Mm -hmm. Right. It's an unknown. So how can we be afraid of something we don't know? It's, 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 well, because the, the brain likes control, too. I mean, all of us, we do. The brain, But when we're talking about like our brain as an organism, it likes control and to be able to think it can predict things. So even sometimes, and especially as kid brains, you have to think about our kids, kid brains that aren't fully developed, when we see certain things in our environment happen and they're bad, and they happen for like no reason, like, you know, just something's happening because of the mysteries of life, right? Or whatever spiritual belief you kind of want to put to that. But... Sometimes things just happen and they are completely out of our control. Our brain doesn't like that as a reason. It would rather assume that it has something to do with us or that we could have controlled it by our weight or this or our worth or how good we were or if we did this. It would rather make that association to an event than to just let it be the mystery of life of why that, it, or out of our control really, or other people's stuff, why that event occurred. And so you think about kiddos who went through, and again, I think that people need to get divorced to put people in more emotionally healthy households, but sometimes kiddos, when they go, when their parents go through a divorce and they're at a certain age, developmental age group, they think about it as this is about me, or I did something wrong, because that's the way that their brains process it, and it's not fully developed to where it can actually see, oh, this has nothing to do with me, this is about mom and dad and their stuff, and not about me. That's so why I had to divorce my mother, because seriously, no, it, was, it was one of the hardest things I ever did, but she was so manipulative and stuff that I just finally said, no. Yeah. And I was an enabler, so it was so easy to fall into that. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, so you just, it's like, no, no, I said no. I learned no is very powerful. Yes. Very powerful. Boundaries. Very to say no. Yeah. Emotional safety. I've learned a lot about what it means to be emotionally safe and to connect with people who are emotionally safe. Right. And that's, I mean, that's incredibly important because sometimes people don't realize the ways that we're kind of putting ourselves in situations, again, not intentionally, but kind of putting ourselves in situations where we're consistently being hurt or in toxic environments or... return to food. Yeah, dealing with a lot of, a lot of extra stuff, so... Okay, we got yeah. a couple minutes left. I just want to make sure you get up here in time yeah, to go back sure. to your clients. Um, sure. A couple minutes left. Any other questions? And What's your new business awesome. called? You know, the funny thing is, literally, so we just, I just started a new business. We got our logo this week, so I'm still getting all the actual official paper materials. I do have some sheets that just talk about our services, and I think that she has my info on it. If you, want to just, um, you guys can also find us online at soma, S -O -M -A, Wichita. Com. Is it Soma Recovery Wichita? Soma Wichita. Got it. Soma And then we're on Facebook, Instagram. I don't know if you guys do that, but you know, I'm trying to move up the social media stuff. And yeah, awesome. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome.
Thank you so much. Alright guys, thank you so much for being here. You guys are amazing. Chairs out there. Uh, yeah, actually that would be awesome if you help me with the chairs. Just <laughs> <laughs> the door over here. Make sure the door on the right wall is 